You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 12, where we will continue to look at salvation, theories of salvation, specifically by focusing on Israel and Christ. At this point, I want to turn a little bit away from only looking at the classical theories of the atonement developed in the patristic and medieval ages and look explicitly at a more biblical approach to it. I'm not contrasting these two. Ultimately, I will show as we go on that really the heart of what we're looking at is really found in St. Thomas Aquinas, who as we'll see at the end of this, shows that when Christ fulfills the law, when he is the perfect sacrifice, that he actually completes all three parts of the Mosaic law. He is the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king who establishes man in righteousness and establishes God with man. So this biblical approach is not at all alien to the medieval approach or to the patristic. It's very much at the heart of Thomas's view, as we will see, but I'm going to set it up this time, first going through the biblical approach to it, and then we will at the end see how that fits into Thomas's approach. But in many ways, this is inspired in harmony with Thomas's profound meditation on the old law and the new law and on the sacrifice of Christ. So the first point here is to begin with this idea is that how was it that the covenants of the Old Testament, the covenants of Abraham, David, and Moses came to be understood as fulfilled in Christ. How do we understand that? How do we see that Christ not only, in a sense, is the atonement of simply man in the abstract who has fallen into sinfulness, but man as the concrete historical man, namely man, God had already worked with Abraham. He had already worked with Moses and David and with his prophets and was preparing a people such that when Jesus came, Christ was the fulfillment of the promises to his people. Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant with Israel, not simply the God-man who solves the problem between man and God, but the man who comes as the Messiah of Israel, the Christ of Israel, to fulfill all the promises that God has already given to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So again, how do we understand Christ's atonement in this biblical setting? Christ, not simply in abstract, although it's fine to present Christ simply in terms of his relationship between God and man, but the fuller Christ in his context in terms of God's actions with the history of Israel. Well, to understand that, we have to begin with a certain concept here. What was Israel at the time of Christ? How did Israel understand herself? Well, Israel, above all, thought that she was in exile. Israel was in exile. We remember that Israel, from David onward, the capital was in Jerusalem. Judah and Israel, when they were united, the United Kingdom of Israel. Eventually, the kingdom split after Solomon. The northern kingdom is destroyed in 721 BC by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, is taken into exile in Babylon in 587. So we have the exile that occurs in 587 BC, which is known as the Babylonian exile. Israel's literally taken into captivity. Well, 70 years later, roughly, King Cyrus of Persia, Persians, they basically conquer the Babylonians, 
So then they have the Jews in Babylon and they send them back to Jerusalem and they allow them to build a temple. And they build the second temple and it's much smaller than Solomon's temple which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And this second temple, in a way there is a return. There's a return under King Cyrus. Return to Jerusalem, a return to the temple. But there's also a sense in Jerusalem at that time by the Jews that God's promises had not yet been fulfilled. There was no Davidic king. The temple was not as glorious as the old temple. There was no real kingdom. Israel was not a military power. It was not a nation, a kingdom that was meant to rule other nations, to lead other nations into the worship of the true God. So because of that, and as time went on over the years, the Jews understood that even after the return, they were still in exile. And so that when the Jews around Jesus' time, 500 years after the return, they still thought that even though they lived in Jerusalem, they were still in exile because they did not have the full righteousness. They did not have the full king, the son of David. And they also did not have the glorious temple with the cloud present. So in this time, the first century before Christ, many Jews were looking forward to a time when God would come and end the exile, when he would end the exile and restore Israel to the promised land, which meant not only to live in Jerusalem, but to dwell in Jerusalem with a Davidic king, which would rule over the Gentile nations to bring all of Israel and the Gentile nations into the true worship of the true God. So again, the Jews were looking forward to this time and they saw that this exile would end at some point with what was known as the day of the Lord. Many of the prophets spoke about the day of the Lord when there would be a day, some time when God would come and he would come and he would restore Israel to her proper place. He would render judgment on the Gentiles and elevate and vindicate Israel at least the faithful Jews in Israel. The faithful Jews thought that God would not only judge the Gentiles, but he would judge the faithless Israelites as well. Many of the Jews would have had this view. Although they would have had different views about how it would occur, they would have agreed that this is what they were expecting. Some Jews were looking for exclusively, say, a military uprising. The faithful Jews would revolt, overthrow the Romans, would establish a kingdom and judge the Gentiles the Gentile Romans. Other Jews of the time associated above all say with the Essenes, the Essenes which were a community that really withdrew almost into the wilderness, withdrew into the mountains and lived there in trying to be a complete observance of the law away from everything that was impure. They thought the temple in Jerusalem was impure and was not the real temple. So they withdrew from Jerusalem, they withdrew from the Jews that they considered faithless and withdrew into the wilderness and tried to live a community that would be utterly faithful and that God would reward them. The day of the Lord would come when God would judge not only all the Gentiles, but also all the Jews in Jerusalem and literally come down with a, a sense a mystical temple, that a temple would simply come down and the new temple would be built by God himself. And the scenes were waiting for this. So there's another community, of course, known as the Pharisees and Saul of Tarsus who becomes St. Paul. Paul was in many, is the most famous Pharisee. He studied with Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis. And what he then understood as a Pharisee was that by zealous observance of the law, and which, which still was centered around the temple, 
the worship of God was still centered around the temple in Jerusalem. By that, the Pharisees would be the righteous Israelites, the righteous Jews, who draw God into his final vindication, his final restoration, when he would restore Israel, if he would restore the Davidic king, he would restore Israel to her holy land, that she could be a holy people, and it would render judgment on all the faithless Jews and on the Gentiles. Now, what's important to understand is that this vision of expecting the return to come stays with Paul throughout his conversion. As a Pharisee, he believed that the Pharisees' obedience and zealous observance of the law would bring about and would be the occasion for God restoring his people. But what happened was, when he saw that Jesus Christ had died and then rose again, and when Christ appears to him on the way to Damascus in Acts 9 and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he reveals, in a way, the great mystery of the mystical body of Christ to Paul. What Paul saw was what he thought was going to happen at the end of time, namely that the day of the Lord would come where he would restore Israel and judge the Gentiles, had happened in the midst of time. That what he thought was going to happen at the end of time, this great judgment, this vindication, this day of the Lord, had already happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he saw that Jesus' death on the cross was the judgment that was rendered on faithless Israel, on the faithless Gentiles. But that when that man, Jesus, when Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but then rose again, that the rising again was God's restoration of the faithful Israelites, of the faithful remnant. So that when Jesus rises again, he personifies the new Israel that has been definitively restored by God. And his death and then his resurrection shows the judgment that has occurred against the Romans standing for the Gentiles and against the faithless Jews, namely the Jewish authorities and Judas Iscariot and other Jews that cooperated in handing him over. So the faithless Jews and the Gentiles are judged unworthy. They are judged and the faithful Israel, namely Jesus Christ himself who personifies all of Israel, is vindicated. So the day of the Lord that Paul thought would happen at the end of time, Paul begins to see happen in the middle of time in Jesus Christ. And so Paul then lives the rest of his life and sees his mission in the rest of his life as helping all Christians to see that they now live in the day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord is not a singular day, but the day of the Lord is a continual day. Namely, that day of the Lord that began with Christ's death and resurrection and continues until the second coming of Christ. So that day of the Lord is a continual judgment of the faithlessness of human beings and also a continual vindication of faithfulness in Christ. So what happens, what does this mean then? Well, it means for us then that in Christ, in his resurrection, we see that the exile has ended, that the exile ends in Christ. We now have the definitive restoration. We have the restoration because now we have a Davidic king, the son of David, Jesus Christ, who accomplishes perfect peace and righteousness in himself and through his perfect law establishes peace and righteousness in his kingdom. We have Christ, of course, that establishes true justice and righteousness in his people. So that Paul will say, of course, that we are justified by faith in Christ. That in Christ, we are justified. Secondly, of course, the restoration has occurred because not only is Israel purified, but God again now dwells with Israel. Just as God dwelled 
with Adam and Eve, just as God dwelt with Moses and Israel in the tabernacle and dwelt with Solomon and Israel in the temple, God now dwells with man in Christ. And that after Christ's resurrection, he dwells with Christ in his body. Remember that Paul had the doctrine of the mystical body of Christ taught to him directly by Christ. When Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he saw that Christ was present in his members, in the Christians. So because of that, the church as the body of Christ is that new temple, is the new holy land where God himself will dwell. Now, the second aspect that I want to look at in terms of seeing how that this has been accomplished, not only that Christ has ended the exile and brought about the restoration of Israel and the judgment of sinful humanity, but also looking at how is it that the cross actually accomplishes this? Another way of looking at it, what is the covenant logic of the cross? Why did Christ have to die on a cross to do this? We've already answered that a little bit because we see that the cross itself is the judgment of faithless Israel, the judgment of the faithless Gentiles, and his resurrection is the vindication of the faithful remnant of Israel. But I also want to look at how it is that Christ's death fulfills specifically some of the other covenants more specifically. Generally, we see the covenants aimed at the establishment of God's holy kingdom with a holy people and a holy land. Specifically, I want to look at some of the covenants to see how it is that this has been accomplished. When Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, he says to them, this is the resurrected Jesus, he says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. This is from Luke 24. What did Jesus mean? How did he interpret all the scriptures? I said, we've already looked at this way of approaching it, and that's I say, the general approach. Here we want to hone in on one or two specific approaches within that one. Well, if we go back to the covenant that God made with Moses, not only at Mount Sinai, but the covenant that he reestablished on the plains of Moab in the book of Deuteronomy. We will see that in Deuteronomy 28, there are blessings and curses laid before Israel. There are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. We can think of this, by the way, that any contract almost, but any covenant has blessings and curses associated with it. Think about the covenant of marriage. If a covenant of marriage is faithfully kept, kept in a loving fashion of joy and service, there are great blessings and joy that is accomplished. But of course, if there's infidelity, if there's betrayal, if there's brutality, there can be, of course, the most intense sufferings within a marriage. Once a covenant is established, there's no neutral ground, right? Either it will bring great blessing or it will bring great curses. And God says this in Deuteronomy 28. In the first 14 verses he talks about in Deuteronomy 28, he says that if you obey God's commands, if you obey the commands I've set before you, God will bless you. Everything will be blessed. Your families will be blessed. The land will be blessed. All of this, of course, is a foreshadowing for the ultimate blessing that is to occur in Christ. But he says in the rest of the chapter, and the curses are much longer in Deuteronomy 28 than the blessings are, he says that if you do not obey the voice of God, you will be cursed. And he begins to speak about these curses that Israel is going to suffer. Basically, Israel will be defeated by her enemies. Israel will be ultimately exiled by her enemies. We see that the whole punishment of exile, of being taken out of the land, is a result of Israel's sinfulness. 
not only does Deuteronomy 28 say that they will be in exile, but they say specifically they will be exiled by a Gentile nation. They will be taken out by a Gentile nation. They will be beaten. They will be hungry. They will be thirsty. They will literally have a yoke on their neck that will destroy them. So what happens then? Israel, because of her infidelity, deserves death, deserves exile, deserves suffering, hunger, thirst, all of these things. And Israel has suffered them to a certain extent. She has been exiled, she has suffered, she has been handed over to the Gentiles, but she's never been destroyed. So the fullness of the curses of Deuteronomy have not been exercised or executed on Israel. So what happens then? Well, Christ comes as the one who bears the curses of Israel. Christ is the one who stands in the personification of Israel. He is literally exiled at the hands of the Gentiles. He is led outside the walls of Jerusalem to Calvary by the Romans, by Gentiles. He's exiled by Gentiles. He suffers hunger, thirst, and literally with a yoke of wood suffers death and is destroyed at the hands of the Gentiles. So that all the curses that were given and laid upon Israel in Deuteronomy because of her infidelity are actually borne by Christ. Christ bears all the curses that were due Israel and thus frees Israel from those curses. Christ frees Israel by taking all the curses upon himself. And by the way, if we read a few verses from the New Testament, we see that this is what is at the heart of Paul's and others' proclamations of Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the bond that stood against us was nailed to the cross. The payment, the curses that we owed were like this. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14, said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right? What was the curse of the law? The curse of the law was that because Israel was faithless, she deserved the curses that were due her. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul writes, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone that hangs on a tree. That in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of spirit through faith. So what does it say there in Galatians 3, 13 and 14? Christ has become the curse and because of that has actually not only freed Israel, who was under the curse, but now has freed all the Gentiles as well. Because the Gentiles were not under the curse of the Mosaic law, but they were under the curse of death as children of Adam. Just as Adam suffered death as a result of his disobedience to the covenant with God of creation, all the Gentiles are under the curse of death. Israel is under the specific curse of exile and death. All the Gentiles are under death. When Christ takes all those curses upon him, the curse of Israel and the curse of all the Gentiles, the curse of exile and the curse of death, he takes those curses upon him, he dies on the cross, and he bears all those curses, and those curses are ended. So that now Christ ends those covenants and begins and perfects them in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So that in his covenant, now through faith in him, the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, has given the blessing of Abraham to all the Gentiles and all the Jews through Jesus Christ. So here we see how Christ, he suffers the curse that was due Israel specifically and all the Gentiles because of their infidelity. 
Now, the final way I want to look at in terms of seeing how is it that Christ fulfills the law of Moses, because the fulfillment of the law of Moses, it does not mean that he ends the law of Moses as though the law of Moses stops, as though the law of Moses were, in a sense, bad and, you know, wicked and was only good for the Old Testament. But now that Christ comes, he finishes the old law so that now we can only have the new law. Well, that's not the right way of putting it. What was the center point of the old law? Just as it said in Leviticus 19, right? You, Israel, shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. So the heart of the old law was that Israel would become truly holy and that she would dwell with God. Again, that there would be a holy people, the people made righteous and holy, who would dwell in a holy land, namely, would dwell with God himself. And that, of course, is the heart of the old law. And therefore, that is, of course, preserved and fulfilled and completed in the new law. It's not revoked at all. So what happens here? Well, traditionally, in following St. Thomas Aquinas, we divide the Mosaic law into three parts. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial or the juridical law. The moral law is that part of the law of Moses that simply conforms to us as human beings, conforms to our human nature. The moral life that is simply proper to us. The ceremonial law refers to all the sacrifices, the purity, and everything else that was aimed at allowing Israel to offer a holy sacrifice to God. And the juridical law is ultimately the law of the king, the king who was meant to establish righteousness in his land. So what St. Thomas says is that all of this part of the Mosaic law, the juridical, the moral, and the ceremonial, all of those are perfected in Christ. How does Christ fulfill these? Well, Christ comes as the perfect priest, prophet, and king. As the perfect prophet, he teaches the moral way. He teaches the moral truth. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. All the demands, the calling to righteousness, the laying forth of the clear way to God is accomplished through Christ as a prophet. So in that sense, the moral law of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Secondly, as priest, Christ fulfills the ceremonial member, the ceremonial part of the law. The ceremonial law was all those sacrifices and purity that was meant to allow Israel to enter the temple, to become pure and holy so that she could enter the temple and offer the true worship of the true God. Well, Christ, of course, accomplishes this because he becomes the perfect sacrifice. As Hebrews will contrast no longer the blood of animals, but now the blood of the Son. That allows us to enter cleanly with a clean conscience, a pure conscience, into the Holy of Holies to be able to worship the true God. Finally, Christ comes as the King. He's not only the priest and the prophet, he's also the King. And as King, he establishes justice in the new people of Israel. So what then happens if we look at Christ like this, we see that the new law, with its sacraments and ceremonies and teachings and church, all of that, it's not that it revokes the old law, it's that it brings the old law into completion. The Mosaic law is fulfilled because it is constantly being perfected in the new law. That all the demands of the old law in terms of the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial, the particular ways that they were fulfilled in the old law, yes, those have stopped. But the heart of the old law is being fulfilled in Christ because Christ is the one who actually accomplishes this. Christ himself taught in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is how the covenant is fulfilled because Christ accomplishes what the old law wanted to accomplish but could not. Finally, in St. Paul, in Romans 10, 4, when 
He says Christ is the end of the law. The word there for end in Greek is telos. Christ is the telos of the law. He is the goal of the law, the point of the law. He brings the old law into fulfillment and he fulfills it by perfectly establishing, perfectly completing in himself all the demands of the law so that therefore those who are in the church, who are in Christ, can share in themselves the perfection of the law, the perfection of their status before God as holy people and before God dwelling with God. So in light of all this, we see as we've seen through the whole drama of Christology, from the scriptures to the early church to the medieval church to liberal heresies to a fresh look at scripture, we see that all of it centers around the church's confession of her bridegroom. That Christ says to the church, who do you say that I am? The church confesses back that you are Lord and God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.